Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Lord, forgive me for the sin of coveting. Oh my goodness. I wish I could play the piano, guitar, or drums. Any of them. I wish I could do any of that. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. For those that are newer to the church, you've only been in this either today's your first time. We're welcome to our church or if you've been only a couple Sundays now. We've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes for, I don't know, uh, three months or so now. And we're coming up to chapter 10, 11, and 12. So the end is in sight, but it's been a great study. And thank you for all of your feedback in it. And a reminder that uh, you can go on the website and watch previous messages or uh, we have the podcast, The Tabernacle Today, out there where you can catch up on what we're doing on Sunday mornings. And we also post the Sunday night and the Wednesday night content on there as well. Uh, On Sunday nights, we're going through the Psalms and on Wednesday night through the book of Hebrews right now. And uh, there's all kinds of nice small groups going on. Those studies become one of those on Sunday and Wednesday nights. But also thankful to all those that come back and work with the children and youth. And a lot of neat things happening here uh, at the Tabernacle. Well, in school, many of us learned about Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian man who helped India get its independence from Great Britain through nonviolent resistance. And in doing so, he became an inspiration to Martin Luther King Jr., and the American Civil Rights Movement. And you may be aware that last week America celebrated the 60th anniversary of King's great I Have a Dream speech. And I remember in high school being so motivated and just satisfied as I read the great story of what King had done. Uh, This was the 80s, so not the 60s, but the 80s. So I wasn't there, like some people claim to be there. But in the 80s, I was reading about it. And I had a 10-page paper for a history class. It wound up being 40 pages uh, talking about the Civil Rights Movement. The teacher gave me an A but said, you wrote way too much, much more than I wanted to read. But I was so inspired by it all. And he was inspired by Gandhi and Gandhi's nonviolent resistance to Great Britain that helped earn India's independence. In his book, The 16 Undeniable Laws of Communication, John Maxwell tells a great story about Gandhi. Listen to this. A woman took her little boy to see the great leader, and she said, Mahatma, please tell my little boy to stop eating sugar. And Mahatma Gandhi considered that for a moment, and he said, come back in three days. Come back in three days. And so she did. In three days, the woman returned with her little boy, and Gandhi said to the lad, lad, Stop eating sugar. It, it's not very good for you, and it'll, you know, not be good for your health overall if you eat too much of it. And the woman was puzzled. And so she looked at Gandhi and she said, But why was it necessary for us to return after three days? Couldn't you just have told the boy to stop eating sugar when we first visited? And here's what he said. I could not tell him that then, Gandhi replied, because three days ago I was also eating sugar. <laughs> 
Now, even though Gandhi never became a Christian, he was inspired, you've probably heard this, by the extra mile, go the extra mile teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he was greatly inspired by some of those things there. And I would like to think that some of that was in him, that teaching anyway, when he uh, recognized that it would be better for his own health to get right with eating less sugar too. And so then he could tell the boy that. And it made me think, if a non-Christian like Gandhi developed a tender conscience and wanted to make sure that his walk matched his talk, how much more should those of us who are saved and go into heaven seek to maintain a good testimony? I was really convicted by that. And I think about this second half of the book of Ecclesiastes and how Solomon has been urging believers to live lives now within the God-given boundaries he has given. Now, we have to start with that relationship with him. There is nothing that we're called to do as a Christian that we can do in our own power and strength. Uh, you know, every once in a while I see somebody in the church and they've come in and they've had a lot of rough years and they're thinking, okay, I, I need to make a change. And so they come in and they observe Christians and they like some of what they see and they don't like some of what they see and they start reading the Bible and they attend church and Sunday school and get involved a little bit, but they have a frustration because it's all try, try, try in their own strength. And we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength. As humble sinners, we acknowledge the only reason we can go to heaven is because of what Christ did for us. Amen? We can't earn our salvation through good deeds and through efforts to be a good person. We can't keep our salvation by trying more. Uh, it's a matter of faith that saves us, faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. And then the whole Christian life is a life of faith and seeking by faith to appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and to do what the word says and to experience the blessing that comes from doing what he says and uh, the reward that comes from prioritizing your faith in every area of your life. I like how John Bunyan said it. He said, run, John, run, the Old Testament law demands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids him fly and gives him wings. And so if you're trying in your own strength today, uh, then I don't want you to uh, be messed up by this message because we're going to talk about, uh, as Christians who live by faith, trying and seeking to maintain our testimony by just carefully following Christ. So in the second half of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's talked about living within the God-given boundaries that he's given us and seeking to do now what God can reward when the day of judgment comes. God wants us to live lives full of joy and meaning and purpose and make a difference in the lives of those around us in our communities. But before Solomon brings Ecclesiastes to a close in chapters 11 and 12, in chapters 10, he once again pulls out his skill as a writer of Proverbs, pithy little sayings, and he strings them together in chapter 10, and they connect, and yet some of them, uh, uh, you know, are, are reinforcing a point he's already made, and some of like happens in the book of Proverbs, that I think you ought to read the proverb of the day every day if you want to be a wise person. So there's 31 days in the, in the longest month. If you read the proverb of the day during the day, it can give you such great wisdom in uh, communication communication and in living right and living for God's glory and all the different things. And so it's the 10th day of the month. You'd read Proverbs 10 today, tomorrow you read 11, etc. But Pro 
Solomon in chapter 10, we're about to read it, pulls out his skill as a Proverbs writer. We're told that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. And so he would love these statements like this. And he ties them together. And it's all around the common theme that he introduces in verse 1 that we'll read in just a second about how little sins and not so little sins can mess up our testimony if we're not careful. Here we are reading the text. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, a smell. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. I don't know if anybody got an elbow in this side there. Hey, honey. Through laziness, the roof leaks. <laughs> Verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or maybe it'll just happen from the Alexa in the room. A bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Don't mess up your testimony. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and the time we've had worshiping you. Thank you for this text, Lord. Uh, thank you for Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs. Thank you for the Holy Spirit working through Solomon to give us this, the word of God. And we pray that as we see it, Lord God, that it'll be a reminder that you have us to shine forth as lights in the world. We are called, you called us, Jesus, to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But you reminded us that if the salt loses its flavor, it's, it's just no good anymore. And it's just to be for trampled on men. And in your way there, you were talking about our testimony. The lives we lead seeking you and honoring you give us a platform then to share and Lord, as long as there's breath, there is hope for any of us to get our sin forgiven and to influence others for Christ. But we can think of notable examples of good and godly people who entered into a little folly and it drastically reduced the amount of 
impact they could have on others in the days after that, Lord God. And so, Lord, I pray to everyone who can hear this and will hear this, Lord God, that they will consider their walk with you and seek not to mess up their testimony through carelessness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I said it a little bit ago, verse 1 really uh, is the guiding verse for all that comes after it here in chapter 10 and really the first part of 11 too because those are Proverbs too, but we're nipping it at 10 so we can do chapter 11 as a separate chapter next week. And the point of verse 1 is that believers must be vigilant because sin can mess up their testimony. Look at verse 1 there. It says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Can you get that picture in your mind? A perfumer has made a perfume that's just about perfect. And it's ready to sell for a lot of money. And he's glad because it's just about perfect. And he's got a coworker or something that leaves the lid off of the perfume as it's there. And it's been mixed and stuff and ready to be put into all the bottles. And some dead flies say, something's sweet around here. Something smells good. And they fly in there. They get caught in it. They can't get out. And they get mixed in. And they're part of that concoction. How much is the perfume worth now? Not nearly as much, is it? And in a way, it's just not fair for all the good things about the perfume are overshadowed by the dead flies that have gotten in. And it's just not all that it could be because of that. I think about a situation like it. Suppose you went to a restaurant. Maybe this has happened to you. Something like this has happened to me. I think it's happened to most everybody. And you order a bowl of soup at a restaurant. And it comes out, and let's suppose there's a dead fly in it. So there you've got this soup made by a great chef and whether in the kitchen or on the way in a fly got in there and the fly has died, what do you do? Well, you call the waiter over, right? Or the waitress, you call them over and they say, there's a fly in your, this soup. Now what if the waiter reached down and plucked the fly out with his fingers and said, it's okay now, the fly's gone, enjoy your soup. How would you feel about that? You wouldn't feel so good, would you? Would you eat that soup? No, you'd expect them to throw that soup out, bring you more soap in a new bowl, wouldn't you? And Solomon is saying something like that here in verse 1. He tells us the point of what he said in the second part. Look what he says. So a little folly, a little foolishness, a little sin outweighs wisdom and honor. Otherwise a wise person, otherwise an honorable person, but this little folly has outweighed it. Look what he said at the end of chapter 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And now he's telling us that even one sin can mess up an otherwise godly person's testimony. And it still happens today. I think we can all picture, I don't need to call out a name in the last 20 years, 30 years, we can all picture a preacher or several preachers and we thought, oh my, that guy, he brings it. My goodness, uh, man, when, his, when he speaks, oh, it just encourages me so much. I want to go back and look at his, uh, uh, get his uh, um, tapes and then CDs and then uh, want to subscribe to his podcast where they put the sermons on there and the YouTube channel and all those different things. And then they write books too. And that same one that's won these, done these great sermons, we go and get their books. And, oh, they're, they're good like the, most of the books of a preacher are just the sermons turned into a book, you know. But we get the books and we go, oh, this is some of the 
same great stuff that has encouraged me and edified me so much. And then inevitably we hear the word, don't we? That preacher that has blessed us so much has gotten foolishly involved with a woman or he's mishandled money or he's used his position to bully others. And the days of their biggest impact are over. It doesn't mean they can't have some impact in the future, but the impact they had is all gone out because of the little folly. I just need to pause for a minute to let that one settle in myself, you know, and just how sad it is, how it breaks your heart. And uh, I was lamenting a few months ago about... um, how few, and there's, you know, it's like the story of Elijah, right? Elijah's throwing himself a pity party. And he said, I'm the only one. And the Lord said, no, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Now, there was millions of people living in Israel at the time, so the fact there was only 7,000 is still pretty sad. But I was lamenting, and I was thinking, okay, Adrian Rogers is with the Lord in heaven. Charles Stanley is and others. And I thought, Lamar Mooneyham as of January and... I thought, you know, who do those of us who are 50s, 40s, and 30s, who who are we looking to, you know, that has an influence with everybody that we can count on? You know, the great preachers of the past, you could count on them to say things and do things in such a way that it wouldn't make my job as a local church pastor harder. In other words, it'd be like they were, it was D-Day, and they were the ones doing the aerial cover so I could be on the beach at Normandy, right? And, uh, and they're still out there, and I hope I'm that for ones that are younger than me. I don't know, you know. But um, I think about the loss of that to the body of Christ. Billy Graham, you know, in heaven now, finished well. He finished well, and others finished well, and we look to them. And I think about how many preachers these days that are in their 50s and 40s and 30s and 20s, there's some great ones out there. I know there are. I listen to them also. But some of them seem to have a little less sense of the fact that their platform and being so big is something that helps preachers other places do their job too. And so instead of being something that helps us, they're trying to be a little too clever with their words and their actions. And it makes the local pastor's job just a little bit harder. But I think about the foolish ones that could have had that impact and now don't because of the little sin, the sometimes bigger sins that all come to light. The same thing happens in individual homes, doesn't it? A dad or a mom commits a sin that will always overshadow the good thing they did in their homes. It'll always be a little bit of tarnishing on their legacy, always something that will be a little asterisk in their children's minds. And if you can, through faith and repentance, if you can do something to remove those asterisks now, do it. Do it. Humble yourself before the Lord. Claim Second Chronicles 7.14 for you. If my people called by my name will understand their sin, they'll really get the impact of their sin and how awful it is before a holy God and they'll humble themselves and they'll repent and turn from that sin. Seek God's face and let him forgive their sin. Turn to him with all their hearts. Then he says he'll hear from heaven and he'll heal their heart. He'll heal their land. And that's what we want as individuals. But it happens in a home when a dad or mom commits that sin and it overshadows otherwise good things. It happens to otherwise solid teachers and coaches and community business owners and city council members and college presidents and others that are doing good things and yet 
some big sin happens and they were careless about it and even little sins turn into bigger things. With God, there is forgiveness and restoration when we confess our sins and turn back to him. But some foolish actions we engage in have ongoing consequences and limit the rest of our earthly impact. Do you remember who Solomon's dad was? David, great man of God, man after God's own heart, did such wonderful things. But the sin with Bathsheba, but the murder of her husband Uriah and the constant friction there was in his family after that. God is good, God is gracious, and thank God he ministers to us and through us on the other side of such things. Solomon would not have been alive if there was not life after such a sin. And yet here's Solomon warning about the dead flies and the ointment. By the way, I wouldn't be here either. My mom was married before, and when she was pregnant with my older sister, her husband at the time didn't want to be a dad, and left and uh, a couple years later my mom and dad met at a bowling alley and I'm the spare <laughs> right so uh, my divorced mom met my dad and you know I came into the world because of that and so did my sister and my brother and so God can work he can always bring his plan A out of our plan B choices but particularly the higher the profile you have a dead fly can mess up what would have been otherwise great perfume so I think about uh, does, does anybody here know how Solomon says it in Song of Solomon? What, what, what can destroy an otherwise great vineyard? Little foxes. Good, everybody. All right. Yeah, little foxes can, foxes can spoil the vineyard, and dead flies can spoil otherwise good perfume. So how do we keep our testimony uh, strong? Well, in verses 2 to 7, we learn this. We embrace godly choices and avoid foolish behavior. So look at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. I'm here to tell you that verse has nothing to do with politics, but uh, some candidates might want to pull it out there. Um, Solomon is speaking here of making right choices that honor God instead of wrong choices that are sinful and dishonor God. It reminds me of what he wrote in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Quote it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Now because of our sin natures, we are drawn. Let me see. Uh, what happens if I drop these keys? What's gravity going to do? We have a sin nature that's constantly drawing us back to sin. Once we're born again, we get a new nature, a godly nature, but these two natures fight the rest of our life. So for the believer, there's that sin nature drawing us back to do sinful, dumb things. That's why it's critical that you never, ever make the mistake of calling yourself a good person. I'm not a good person. You're not a good person. We're sinners who left our own devices can do any sin. That's why Paul, even after years after salvation, said, I am the chief of sinners, not I was, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of them, he said. And Danny Campbell's the worst of sinners. And left to my own devices, I know the uh, predispositions I have in certain areas, and that's who I'd be, and some of those sins go back generations in my family. God has saved me, and I'm living out a different course because my faith is in him. But you have to be intentional. Do you understand that? Say Amen. So there's this sin nature drawing us back. But now, when you're born again, there's this new nature that is with the Holy Spirit of God inside, 
having you hear and understand the scriptures and apply them in your life, and you can do different things than you used to do. It'll be imperfect, and you've got to remember, like Pastor Lamar said, to keep your sin account short. You need to confess sin as it's revealed to you by the Holy Spirit and get his forgiveness. But the believer seeks to intentionally do godly things. Now, verse 3 is kind of funny. It says, look here, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. Hi, I'm a fool. He doesn't have to use those words, but by acting like a horse's rear end, you know, as he's out there on the road uh, and walking around, everybody can say, that guy's a fool. That girl's foolish, you know. And that can happen all kinds of different ways. And that's what Solomon points out here. Fools just show what they, what they, where their life is at out there like that. Be different than that. Sometimes the foolish person's in a position of authority over you, as is pictured in verses 4 through 7. The old Johnny Paycheck, my boss is a fool. You know, the old Johnny Paycheck song. And in verses 4 through 7, he pictures uh, people that uh, probably should not be in positions of leadership, but they are, and they make you mad as they manipulate people and situations. You've seen authority improperly done, and sometimes it makes you mad. Verse 7 pictures the wise man walking on the ground while the fool is in authority and up on the horse barking out the commands. And he said it shouldn't be that way. The one that has the uh, right uh, faith and attitude should be the one leading things, but instead they're the ones in the role of the servant. And there's nothing wrong with serving, of course. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Solomon's saying, though, that every once in a while somebody rises all the way to the top, whether it's a, a king or a president or a pastor or whatever, and you go, how in the world did they get there? They shouldn't be there. You know, and that happens. And Solomon says that's part of what life's about. Back in verse 4, Solomon pictures a hot-headed ruler foolishly making an angry outburst towards someone who doesn't deserve it. And he's saying that if you are wise, if you're godly, and you want to keep your testimony, don't respond to those angry outbursts of the person that can fire you with anger back at them that gets you fired, right? I like how he says it in Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. And you've seen that happen. You've seen such situations escalate instead of de-escalate. One of the things I appreciate about our uh, chief of police has been the training that he has put his officers through to de-escalate situations. And it's a real gift and talent. And it's needed in the home. It's needed in the workplace. It's needed in churches. It's needed in the community. It's needed in schools. Some of you as principals and teachers have to do that. And, uh, or working over at the Chick-fil-A or wherever. Uh, when the situation's hard and frustrating, what's inside people's going to come out. And if the person in authority is a fool in that moment, he's going to say foolish things. She's going to say foolish things. And you want to respond with godliness and tact. Now, let me be clear. If you are in a physically abusive situation, walk away and seek wise advice about how to proceed. You'll never hear from this pastor me advocating somebody in a position of leadership being abusive in authority and me advocating stay in that situation. I don't think you should. I think you should go and get godly advice about how to proceed. But if you find yourself on the soccer field... And the referee has given you a yellow card. Don't talk right back to him and turn it into the red color where you get kicked out, right? 
de-escalate the situation. If your family member is making a scene in public, I grew up in a family where that happened all the time, and I used to run for cover because it was so embarrassing. If your family member's making a scene in public, don't get into it there with them. Talk about it calmly at home later. If your boss says heartful things to you in an outburst of anger, get back to work and later on in the day start brushing up your resume. If politicians act like they own your children and your paycheck, circle the date on the election calendar and vote them out. Embrace godly choices and do it in a godly way. Well, in verses 8 through 11, he talks about preparation, that we need to prepare for what we will be facing so we will be ready for it when it comes. We want to prepare. And I love how these verses lay out. Uh, so look at verses 8 and 9. And you see it here, don't you? He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. So if you dig a pit, remember there's a pit there when you go out to get the newspaper in the morning, if you're still doing that. If you have to knock down a wall, remember a snake might be living in there and angry that you took away his home. Same thing's true for yellow jackets. If you quarry stones... Wear a hard hat. Or if you, like one of the members of my previous church, he used to get to blow things up for a living. You know, dangerous stuff. Dynamite use all the time. What? He'd say when you talk to him. What? Um, we're the earplugs too, right? Not just hard hats, but the earplugs. When you're splitting logs, be prepared for the chainsaw to kick back when it hits a knot. These are things that go along with the territory, and you need to prepare for that or get somebody who knows how to do it to help you while you uh, pray for them. If you don't know how to do things that could turn dangerous and deadly in a hurry, learn what you need to know before you do it or get a friend to help you and teach you. Now, I absolutely love what Solomon says next. Don't miss this great verse, verse 10. I've used it to advise young people, especially those going into the ministry for years now. Because look what verse 10 says. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. You've seen it and I have too. Somebody's very excited about their faith. And they're witnessing to friends and some people are getting saved and good things are happening. And they think, uh, you know, I know there's places you can go, Word of Life Bible Institute and uh, Bryan College and Liberty and other places and get that training and stuff like that. Uh, but, but I'm just so excited and I, I feel a call and, and I'm just going to go ahead and go. And God may call some people to do that. Not everybody gets the training, but they take the dull acts that they have and the excitement and zeal they have and they just run and they start chopping at trees and what happens? Spiritually speaking, right? Chopping at trees. Not that a minister is going to chop at people. Um, but uh, they get tired, don't they? Because it's less effective to use a dull axe on the trees. What's more effective is to take the first little bit of time and sharpen the axe, right? And then you'll work more efficiently with the sharper axe as you go out and do that, right? Do you understand what Solomon's saying there? If you need to chop down some trees, sharpen your axe first and you'll have a better go of it than those who just swing away zealously with a dull blade. And uh, unfortunately, I've seen many people go in their zeal when a little bit of training, a lot of training would have helped. And what happens is good things happen in the short term, but there's long-term burnout 
and many times pursuing something else with the rest of their lives. And I've seen others take the time to get that training and then with a sharp axe, and guess what? We're lifelong learners, right? So we resharpen the axe as we go. There are new things that doctors and nurses need to learn as they go along, right? New things that firefighters and police officers need to learn as they go along. And so it's taking the time at the beginning and periodically to sharpen the axe that makes you more efficient. And it's a good, good, good thing. And thank the Lord for the days we live in where there's all kinds of ways uh, to supplement and get that training online and other things too. But there is something about the going away experience that was absolutely instrumental in making me who I have become so if you think I've done the Lord's done a good thing with me understand a lot of it was the teachers and the training and the help I had along the way the experiences they helped me with the way they helped me evaluate stuff even a couple years ago when I needed a lot of wisdom uh, about matters related to managing things from church perspective with the pandemic and stuff like that I'm so thankful I could still call those same godly men there at the Christian college, there at the seminary, and get their guidance and insight on navigating very, very tough things. And that's why I am, just to say a word quickly about Word of Life here, um, I'm so glad for that, aren't you guys? Next week we'll do the standing, if you've ever been to the camp or the institute or the whatever, things like that. I think it's awesome, the heritage we have as a church with that. Uh, I think that if you are going to be, if you think you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, and so that's going to mean Virginia Tech or Virginia or somewhere along the line, I think a lot of young people still should consider maybe a year at the Word of Life and get that instruction and going. And of course, we know what it can do for future ministers along the way as well. Well, verse 11 says why it's important to prepare for things before you face them in life. <laughs> Look what it says. It says, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. What does that mean? Well, if you don't learn how to deal with snakes, they will bite you before you learn how to deal with them. Right? So, you want to learn. Solomon's telling us to avoid what to avoid so the perfume of our lives is not ruined by dead flies. The vineyard's not ruined by little foxes getting in there. They've got fences and gates for the large foxes, the large predators, but the little foxes just get in there. You've got to be vigilant about little tendencies that could turn into big sins and carelessness. Uh, You say, well, I don't have time to pray today. That turns into time not to pray today, tomorrow, the next day. And before you know it, a year, ten years has passed and you've had no meaningful interaction time with the Lord. And uh, you are just running on empty because of that. Little foxes spoil the vineyard. Dead flies get in. Well, he said, don't respond to angry people with anger. Don't neglect to prepare for what you'll face in life. And next he gets into not running our big mouths. So verses 12 through 15, think before you speak and don't talk too much. (laughs) And we don't have to spend long on these verses. These words are pretty clear, actually. Look at verse 12. It says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. If we get words right, carefully selected words to use, it will win favor with people. I like how Paul says it in Ephesians 4.29. He says, let no unwholesome, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You've heard it said. It's a good way to remember it. We've been given two ears and one mouth. Maybe we ought to use our ears twice as much as our mouth. And, you know, too many times in the past, I'm such a spastic person, 
I have only been watching others move their mouth, waiting for my chance to jump in and share what I know, right? And so if you're really going to interact well and not just they speak and you speak and nobody's listening, the, uh, let me tell you if you've never heard it, the secret to great listening. You know what the secret to great listening is? Listen with both eyes. So if you want to have a really good conversation with somebody, turn the TV off, get the other distractions away, sit down where you can see each other. Couples ought to do this every day. We don't do this enough. That's my fault. Um, but you sit down and you look at each other eye to eye and talk through what you need to talk through without the other distractions. And as your children come along and grandchildren, let them know, no, this is mommy and daddy time. We're talking. And so go play. We'll see you in a little bit. But we're talking here. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I'm going to make a confession here. I have worked so hard to be good at this as a pastor over the years that I've not been vigilant enough about it at home. I've often hurt my dear wife and my children by running off at the mouth at home and I still need to get better at it. Family members need building up also, right? And uh, you may be very good in interacting with others in your Sunday school class, but you go home and you're mean and awful to your wife. That's a dead fly in the perfume. Same thing might happen when you interact with your children. You're short with them, but at the office, you're patient with all your coworkers and those things. Hey, I get it. Unfortunately, too many times I've modeled it. You're so tired from being at work and all the responsibilities you have out there that it gets stored up and stored up, and before you know it, you're blowing your lid at your spouse or your children, and you're doing incalculable harm to your testimony before them. If that's you as well, hey, join me at the altar after the service because that's one of the things that occurred to me as I preached this to myself this week. Verse 13 says, the fool starts out talking nonsense and ends up with crazy talk. They just talk so much and talk so much and talk so much that they don't know what they're saying. They double down on stupid and out comes crazy, right? Verse 14 says, the fool really doesn't know what he's talking about, but just keeps on talking and talking and talking and talking. And Proverbs 10, 19, this same Solomon wrote, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. What's a transgression? It's a sin. Where there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The world doesn't need to hear everything you have to say before you've thought about it and prayed about it. Hey, do you see that there? When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. So... When there are many words, transgression is what? Unavoidable. If you speak too much without carefully selecting and praying over your words, out's going to come sin and folly. Now, you may be wondering what verse 15 means. It says, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. And there's different ways to look at that. But the fool is so busy talking and too proud to stop and ask for directions it takes him longer to get to the city and he wears himself out as he, like I say, doubles down on folly. And I'll speak to myself again here. Danny, it's okay not to know something. Don't act like you know when you don't know and exasperate your family. So we want to embrace godly choices. 
we want to prepare for what we'll be facing. And we want to think before we speak. And we think about verse 20 goes along with this one. You know, in this many words, many times the many words are about, uh, you know, what we're watching on the news. And we've got these many words about things we're upset about. We're upset about the president. We're upset about this and that and the city and things like that. And I'm not sure all that Solomon's saying in verse 20 when he says, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice and some winged creature tell the matter. But I know some of what he's talking about there is because it's affected me. I, like you, get upset about a lot that's going on, and a lot of it I can't do anything about, and I need to put my attention into things I can do something about. And so if you wear yourself out commenting on what you can't do anything about, uh, it will sap your strength for the focused areas you can help stuff in. Well, the education system's a disaster. Yeah, come tutor. Come tutor. Let's go to a place where one of the schools in the area with the worst SOL scores, 90% of the kids that get this tutoring pass their SOLs. We can be frustrated about it or we can do something about it. If you've got time, help us do something about it. Verses 16 through 20, the last point he makes here is don't celebrate until the work is finished. Don't celebrate until the work is finished. In verse 16, he says, Woe to you, O land, when your child, king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. <laughs> he says, Woe to the land when the king is a child and he and his prince buddies are feasting and getting drunk in the morning when they should be out working. Hey, this is a great day. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Let's go ahead and party. The work can wait. Oh, I don't feel good. I've got a chance to blow off work and go and do something with friends. So you call in for the third time. You're in danger of getting fired or whatever it is. And you're slacking off rather than working. And then after work, cashing the check and uh, celebrating with friends and family. In verse 17, Solomon says that the land will be happy when the feasting gets done at the proper time and the proper way without getting drunk. And so from that we say the proper time to celebrate is after the work that needs to get done is done. The proper way to celebrate is in such a way that relationships are strengthened and nobody gets drunk. In verse 18, he mentions some more of the dead flies, sloth and laziness. When we should be working but don't, the roof sinks in and the house leaks. But if we've been working... As Solomon once again states in verse 19 that we should enjoy what our product is, work product has generated for us, bread and drink and money to handle things. Do you see it there in verse 19? Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Now in verse 19 there, I'm just going to take a few minutes to do this because Solomon now a couple times has mentioned wine and uh, drinking and so I just want to take a few minutes to restate kind of how I feel about such things and what I think the Word of God says and uh, so let's talk about alcohol for a few minutes the word Solomon uses for wine there is used in 132 verses in the Old Testament the similar word in the New Testament is used in 26 verses and so we've got this little graph on your um, screen there but also in your notes if you have them the amount of negative and positive, neutral and prophetic allusion references to wine in the Old Testament and New Testament. You can go back and do that study yourself and see if your percentages come out a little bit different. But 39% of the references in the Old Testament are negative, including two of the first three. Noah, 
was enjoying his wine from his vineyard, got drunk, and got taken advantage of. Uh, and Lot was liquored up by his daughters, and they wanted children, so they committed incest with him. Ew. And out came the Moabites and the Ammonites. You know, negative references. 21% of the New Testament references are negative. 20% of the Old Testament references are more positive, such as Melchizedek bringing bread and wine out after Abraham had rescued Lot, and the drink offering had the uh, product of the grape in it. And 25% of New Testament references are that. 14% of the references are neutral, simply matter-of-fact reporting that wine was uh, partaken of, and so it doesn't shed it in a negative or positive light. It just says that what was there. And that's... Uh, 32% of the New Testament references. The final 27% of the references are prophetic allusions to judgment, such as drinking the cup of wrath do sins. You know, that uh, the uh, nations are going to have to drink the cup of wrath. They're going to have to take their medicine. They're going to have to drink that wine of wrath. Uh, and we're told that's what Christ bore for us. The cup of wrath do our sins was drunk by him. It was taken up to him, by him on the cross and 20% of the New Testament references. Now one of the things I, I think is interesting is there was a day where, uh, well, there's been many days, haven't there? Back in the 1600s, um, I think most Baptist pastors probably would have said it some of the ways I'm going to tell it to you today. And we know in the 1900s there was a temperance or abstinence movement that affected many Baptist churches and Baptist preaching and still affects us to this day. Uh, Mordecai Ham fought the liquor industry and was run over by vehicles representing the liquor industry and stuff like that. Moffat Memorial Church is named for a local pastor who fought the liquor industry in his day and uh, got killed doing it, you know, uh, and many things like that. And so there was a day that you could count on hearing a Baptist minister preach messages against alcohol and its abuses. And for about 20 or 30 years now, the cool preachers have been saying, no, the Bible says it's okay. And because there are references that are positive. And that is where the discussion should start, not where it should end, that old-timers say you shouldn't and new-timers say you can. Uh, because the Bible message is more nuanced than that, as it is on a lot of different things. Uh, but one of the things that's often left out of talking about alcohol use in the Bible is how few drinking options they had. I mean, we go to the grocery store and you can get a lot of different things and a whole bunch of them are wonderful and non-alcoholic that you celebrate with, right? And we have over the years. There was bread, there was grape juice, there was wine, uh, there was water, grape juice and wine. Now we have lots more options beyond water to drink when we're celebrating something. Tea, soda, non-alcoholic fruit drinks, all kinds of different stuff. One thing that was very interesting for those like me who have for years told people they need to reduce or eliminate alcohol in their life is the study that was done a few years back, and I can dig it out of my office somewhere if anybody wants to see it, but you can research it online too. There was a massive study done over a hundred different countries over more than 20 years, and the conclusion was there's no safe amount of alcohol consumption. There's no safe amount. In other words, if you drink at all, you have problems related to drinking. What about the thought that having a little red wine with our dinner is good for us? That same study concluded we can get the same benefits by drinking grape juice without the built-in problems of any amount of alcohol. 
People must be getting that message in America because according to a recent Gallup poll, a record high 39% of Americans now believe that moderate drinking is detrimental to health because that's what the science says and only 10% say it's good for health. So the studies, the scientific studies are bearing fruit there. Now, interestingly, non-religious people are now more likely than Christians to say alcohol is harmful. It's 47% to 35%. And the biggest jump in numbers saying it was detrimental to health was actually among 18 to 34-year-olds because they can look at scientific studies and say, oh, it says that any amount will mess me up a little bit and none will be helpful for me. I can get the same benefits with something else. So break it down, Danny. Here's what I've always said. I put it in your notes there so everybody would have it when you're talking to people about it tomorrow. Drunkenness is absolutely forbidden in the Bible. It's a sin every time. But not all use of alcohol. There was a use in celebratory context like we see in this passage. Although the amount of alcohol actually in there is debatable. Just like when people talk about marijuana, many older people are thinking of the innocent days where it was far less uh, problematic than it is now. The marijuana people are smoking now. There's messed up stuff in it. You want to beware. You want to beware. But... Drinking, drunkenness is written in the Bible, but not all use of alcohol. However, strong words of caution are given, along with many examples of alcohol use leading to sin, such as Noah and Lot. I believe, based on the scriptures and scientific findings, that almost everyone will be best served by reducing or eliminating the use of alcohol in their life. And there are plenty of non-alcoholic ways to celebrate. I'm not going to judge you if you have that drink with dinner or whatever it is and things like that, but I'm telling you, I still believe that. I still believe that right there. And it makes sense, doesn't it? One way to ensure you won't get drunk is if you don't drink at all. For those that begin drinking, it's just a matter of fact. It's like gambling. For those that begin, a certain amount are going to get hooked and they're going to get addicted and they're going to mess their families up and jack it up. And if you've got any problem whatsoever with addictive personality, stay away from it. Stay away from it for the good of your family. But back to our main point. Don't let anything mess up your testimony. Don't let anything mess up your testimony. Make wise choices instead of foolish choices. Prepare for what you'll be facing. Don't talk too much and get your work done before you celebrate. And don't let your celebrating get out of hand. Bow your heads, please. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.